Uh, please open a Bible up to Exodus chapter 7. If you're using the church Bible, that's going to be on page 58. Uh, you'll recall Moses has been called by God and sent to proclaim freedom to Israel and to the Pharaoh. It's received well by Israel, not so well by the Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh doubles down on the hard labor that Israel is given. Uh, Israel despairs, Moses despairs. And then remember last week, if you were here, the whole thing restarts. Moses encounters God again, and in that fresh vision of God, he's renewed to do the work God has called him to. And so where we pick up is where the story restarts after initial failure, after Moses' despair, he's back at it. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 7 at verse 8, and we're going to read through chapter 8, verse 19. And the chapters, we're breaking them a little strangely the next couple weeks, but I think it'll become apparent why in a few moments. Beginning now in Exodus chapter 7 at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, your God, uh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood." The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers and their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. 
and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to the Pharaoh, uh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from the Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What we see in the book of Exodus in this central section, we know often as the ten plagues. And certainly there is significance to that. Later when Israel comes to Mount Sinai, they're going to be given the Ten Commandments, or in Hebrew, the Ten Words. And so you have ten signs in Egypt, ten words to Israel that kind of are the two uh, counterpoints at the beginning and towards the end of the book. But what we're going to see is that uh, these ten signs are really three cycles of signs and then one climactic final tenth act of judgment against Israel. Egypt. Remember uh, the Pharaoh, when he's first told that the Lord is going, wants his people to come to him, 
The Pharaoh responds with hard heart by saying, Who is the Lord? I've never heard of him, so I'm not going to obey him. And that really sets the scene for everything that happens all the way until chapter 14 at the Red Sea. It's a big argument between God and Pharaoh about who the Lord is. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, the, the proper name. Who is this covenant God of Israel who comes and says, let my people go that they may serve me. And so what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks as we look at this, uh, the 10 plagues, the 10 signs, is a big argument between God and Pharaoh about who is really God. Is it God? Is it the Lord? Or is it God? This morning, uh, we're going to look at three themes. The first, the Lord is God. The second, the Lord is patient, but the human heart is stubborn. And the third is that sometimes faithfulness looks like failure. The first point seems somewhat obvious. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Uh, we don't usually do this, but if you look on the back of your before the throne, I've tried to uh, do a little chart to help see these uh, three cycles of plagues. Kids, you do still have to take notes. I didn't put the main points on that chart. But if you look at that, what you're going to see is that there's three cycles of plagues. Uh, the first, uh, blood. The fourth, horse flies. And the seventh, hail. In each case, God tells Moses, in the morning, go to Pharaoh. The first two times while he's by the Nile. The third time, just early in the morning, go to him. But, so each time, the, the, the beginning of the cycle, it, it begins in the morning. He's told to let the people go. In the second, fifth, and eighth, each time Moses is told to go into Pharaoh in his house, in the palace. And then the third, sixth, and ninth time, there's no warning whatsoever given. Okay, so do you see that there's these cycles where it follows the same beginnings. But beyond that, one, two, and three, each time it's Aaron who stretches out the staff in his hand. Four, five, and six, there's no specific reference but then 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see in a couple weeks that it's Moses who stretches out his hand. So there's these uh, patterns that keep repeating and tying these together. And why it's significant, uh, well, first, because that's how the Bible narrates the story, and so it's good for us to see that sort of thing. But second is each of these cycles begin with God saying, here is what you're going to know by what's about to happen. So in 7.7, 7, God says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Then in 8.22, at the beginning of the second cycle, by, the, by this you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Okay, not just I'm the Lord, but I'm here in the middle of your land, Pharaoh. And then at the beginning of the third cycle in 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in the land. Okay, it's a big argument with three premises, three steps in the argument. First, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? The first cycle says, look, there is someone called the Lord and you've got to take him seriously. He's really there. The second cycle says, not only is there someone called the Lord that's maybe the God of Israel off in Canaan, but he's here in the middle of Egypt and you've got to reckon with him. And then this third cycle is saying, not only is the Lord here in the midst of Egypt, but there is no one like him. Okay, it's an exclusive claim. It's a denial of the reality of Egypt's gods. So the first point then of this first cycle of plagues we're looking at is simply this. I am the Lord, or to put it in third person, the Lord is God. 
The Lord is God. That's the first point that God is trying to make. There is a being known as the Lord who really does exist, who is an agent who acts in the world, who has to be taken seriously. Okay, and how does he prove this point? How does he make this argument? By a series of signs. First, when Pharaoh says, can you do your miracle for us? Prove yourself by working a miracle. They throw down the staff and it becomes a serpent or crocodile. And then the series of signs, the water turned into blood, the frogs coming out of the water into the houses, and the gnats everywhere. What's going on here? Pharaoh says, prove yourself by working a miracle. Uh, the way he says it is a bit flippant. It's like uh, Moses and Aaron come knocking again, and they're a bit like a door-to-door salesman. It's like, okay, show me how sharp your knives are. Let's get it over with so I can get rid of you. That's kind of the attitude he has here. Okay, let's see your signs, uh, and then you can be on your way. Prove yourself by working a miracle. Well, what is a miracle? What is a miracle? Uh, David Hume, the skeptical uh, 18th century Scottish philosopher, famously defined a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature. And that definition seems to be broadly kind of what's in the back of our minds as modern people. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. Well, some of the things that are called a miracle here in the book of Exodus that we're reading this morning do indeed seem to be violations of the laws of nature. Okay? Uh, Sticks don't usually become snakes, right? That is unusual. But many of the other things do not seem to violate any known laws of nature. Okay? Frogs coming out of the water onto land, well, frogs do that. Uh, Swarms of locusts devouring fields, that happens today. Hail, hail storms, devastating hailstorms, that's just the sort of thing that happens. Uh, It doesn't seem to be obviously violating any law of nature. Many of these uh, miracles are a bit more like Babe Ruth pointing out a home run, okay? Lots of baseball players can hit a home run, but when Babe Ruth points out the section in the stadium where the ball's going to land, that's kind of a different level. Similarly, there's lots of hailstorms. When we were in Denver last week for a wedding, uh, the rental car company, you sign the waiver, you know, anything smaller than a silver dollar, that's covered. With the exception, if it's a hailstorm, that's all on you, which I don't understand how that can be possible. But apparently, hailstorms in Denver destroy rental cars, and you're liable for it if you happen to be driving during that storm. So, uh, you know, hailstorms happen. But hailstorms happening right when you're warned a hailstorm is about to destroy your crop, that's a whole different thing. It's the timing that seems to be significant. Some of the miracles of the Exodus actually even specify natural causes. So when we get to the locusts in a few weeks, we're told that the strong east wind blows all these locusts into Egypt. And then after Moses prays, the wind turns and the west wind blows the locusts back out of Egypt. And when they come to the Red Sea and they get ready to cross it, we're told specifically that a strong east wind blew all night long so that the water separated and they were able to cross through. So some of these miracles even specify natural causes. So what then is a miracle? I think probably a more biblical definition is something like this, an unusual event brought about by God, an extraordinary manifestation of God's lordship. Okay, it's something that happens that grabs our attention and it points beyond itself to God. Okay, 
Locusts in general, they're all over the place. Chapel kids in a couple months here will be catching them, uh, right? They're, we see them all the time. But when a, crowd, uh, a whole uh, swarm of locusts gets blown in right after someone prays for it, and then it leaves right after someone prays for it, that gets your attention. And it points beyond itself to a higher power. Uh, Ian Hutchinson, who's a Christian and also a plasma physicist, I don't even know what that means, but that's what he is, and uh, professor of nuclear science at MIT, says a miracle is an extraordinary act of God in which for some other overriding principle of his character and will, God upholds a part of the universe in a manner different from normal. God is true to his principles, and that is why in the normal course of events, nature is consistent and law-like. Okay? The world is the way it is because God wants it to be that way and God is faithful. But these principles are not for God mechanical constraints and they can be superseded when higher principles are at stake. Okay? Sticks don't normally turn into snakes because God upholds the universe to be consistent. But God's not so bound by that that he can't turn sticks into snakes at certain points. So these miracles, what are they telling us? That there is a God and he is active in the world through both natural and supernatural means and we have to take him seriously. The Lord is God. Okay, there's the first argument through these signs. The Lord is God. The question is though, can we believe it? Can we believe it? Can we believe that an inanimate object, a staff, can become a living thing? a serpent. Is that really possible? Well, when we ask, can we believe it, there's really multiple levels to this question. One question is, are we psychologically able to believe it? Okay, uh, Can we sit with it? Can we live with it? Are we able to believe it in that sense? Uh, and in part, Pharaoh hardening his heart, no, he's unable to believe it. He refuses to believe it because his heart is dull. But at another level, we're asking the question, is this believable? Is this something that rational people can hold to be true and still be rational? The answer is yes, because everybody believes that inanimate objects somehow can become a living thing. Okay, Every story of how life got here on earth has to have some point where there was inanimate things, either it's you know, dust of the earth that then becomes separated into dry, you know, God breathes into it and becomes humans. There's the dry land of Genesis that then brings forth seeds and plants. Uh, the evolutionary story, and, and these don't have to be in competition, but just to make the point that everybody has a story. At some point, you have a bunch of chemicals floating around in a, uh, the last I heard is maybe Hawaii seems like a good spot because you have glaciers and jungle, and so somehow, you know, the glacier comes down and it pushes all of these chemicals into the right temperature, and somehow those chemicals all get together, and it's no longer just a chemical reaction, but you have little primitive uh, single-cell organisms, uh, or even before that, I guess it's viruses, those sorts of things. But all that to say, everybody believes at some point inanimate objects become animate. Simon Conway Morris is the professor of evolutionary paleobiology at Cambridge University and also a Christian. And he writes, the question of just how inanimate became animate has proved stubbornly recalcitrant. It should all be rather simple, especially if you worship at the, crowd, uh, the crowded shrine of self-organization. And yet somewhere, somehow, the right question has not yet been asked and not for want of trying. 
and he quotes a variety of uh, evolutionary biologists who say it, it, it's almost miraculous that somehow these chemical reactions at some point led from being inanimate into being animate living things. So everybody believes that at some point the animate became not living, became living. I, I'm going to get too confused using those words. The question is, how does it happen? Is it sheer chance? Or is there a God who providentially guides all things and who can, for higher principles, because he's revealing himself to Pharaoh, at times suspend natural order and do it once again, turning a stick into a snake? That's really the question. Is it all sheer chance? And if it is all sheer chance, according to the laws of statistics, there could theoretically be a chance where a stick getting thrown down, all the atoms reorganize and it becomes a snake. If chance is the ultimate principle of all things, then nothing is off the table. Lawrence Krauss, uh, a skeptical physicist, wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And his contention in this is that he can show that the universe created itself and so we don't need God and we don't need anything like that. The problem is when he says a universe from nothing, he defines nothing as unoccupied space-time within which a new universe is generated by quantum effects, possibly involving vacuum fields. It needs a balance of matter and antimatter, and it's all governed by the laws of physics. Well, that's not really nothing, is it? It's a bit like saying, if you give me a chicken, I can produce an egg. But why should we grant him the whole chicken to make the egg? If there's space-time, if there's matter, antimatter, laws of physics, that's a lot of something in his nothing. Rather, as a, a, a Christian professor of physics at Glasgow, Peter Busey says, to the religious believer, however, the laws of physics themselves are miracle, but it's one of a different kind and magnitude. The fact that there are laws that regularly govern the universe, that the world is coherent and generally explicable in terms of mathematics is itself miraculous. So the question is, do we believe in sheer chance or do we believe in God? And if you believe the Lord is God, you get miracles, but you also get all the natural laws thrown in for free. There's a reason why there are natural laws, because God is consistent and faithful. But the real question, the real argument that's being made to Pharaoh here is, does it make a difference in your life? It's not God in the abstract, but God as an agent active in the world. The first point that's being made to Pharaoh here and to us is the Lord is God. There is a God. As Schaefer puts it, he is there and he is not silent. Calvin says the whole world is a vast theater where God's glory is on display. Okay, it's like going to see Shakespeare, except everywhere you go, the whole world shows God's glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals wonders, or reveals knowledge. The whole world points us to this truth. The Lord is God. And then history is filled with signs and wonders that point us beyond what we can see to some God that we cannot see. We have the signs of the Exodus, but then, of course, the signs of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, this definitive proof of who is the Lord of history.
So the Lord is God. He's not absent from the world. He's active in the world. And the question before us is, does it make a difference in your life? Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to not take God into account in the way you live. Do you take God into account? Well, one implication that we see here in this cycle, first cycle of plagues, is that the Lord is patient, but the human heart is stubborn. That's the second theme I want to reflect on. The Lord is patient, but the human heart is stubborn. The contest here is, who is really God? Is it the Lord, or is it Pharaoh? Uh, in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh claimed to be a god on earth. He was the god of the state, and his job was to enforce order. Uh, in Egyptian, I guess it's called ma'at. It's cosmic order. It's both justice and the regularity of the seasons. So Pharaoh claimed to be a god. And yet the Lord says, I am God. I am the king who is going to war for my people. As we sang this morning in How Great Thou Art, or earlier, he is the savior God. And so we see in this intensifying cycle, the beginning stages of this great contest to see who is God. The first sign is the Nile water being turned to blood. The Nile is the source of life in Egypt. Uh, Egypt had a uh, very regular natural cycles where the Nile flooded each flood season and the floodwaters uh, irrigated all of the land on either side of the river and that narrow band of land on either side of the river is where all of the Egyptians live. And so actually one of the ancient names for the kingdom of Egypt is the two lands, the two strips of land on either side of the river. And that annual regular cycle of flooding and then the waters go back and then you're able to plant and grow crops structured uh, Egypt's religious life as well. That they saw an annual cycle of the death and rebirth of gods that uh, the sun passes into the underworld and comes back up. But what do we see in this first sign? The Nile, the lifeblood of Egypt, becomes blood itself. Or... Does it? I guess that's the question. Uh, what does it become? This word blood occasionally is used for a color, blood colored. Uh, usually it's used for blood that comes out of your veins. And so uh, either the Nile becomes very red with some sort of a algae bloom or maybe a, a silty flood of uh, uh, red sand, or it literally becomes blood. Uh, and you can have it either way because the point here in Exodus is not, you know, put it under a microscope and figure out what it became. The point is that God has power over the Nile, and when he strikes the Nile, the water becomes undrinkable, and the fish all die. The life source of Egypt has been stricken. Then the second sign, the sign of frogs, there's humor in the second sign. 8.2 uses the same word for struck that 7.25 uses. Uh, in 7.25, the Lord struck the Nile. 8.2 if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will strike all your country. And what does the great warrior God strike the country of Egypt with? Is it some kind of a bow or sword or spear? No, he says, I will strike all your country with frogs. And you can imagine, you know, Pharaoh and his magicians saying, hang on a second, what, what now? Uh, and yet it goes on. Do you see the joke? Or, you know, saying surely this is a joke, but, but no, frogs in your house, frogs in your bedroom, frogs in your bed. It sounds a bit like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? Frogs in your servant's house, frogs in your people's house, frogs in your oven, frogs in your KitchenAid. 
Okay. Pharaoh initially laughs it off, but by the time the frogs are everywhere and he can't sleep because they're in his bed, he wavers and asks Moses to intercede. And what does Moses say? Pick a time. Okay, frogs coming out of the water, that happens every day. Frogs going into the water, that happens every day. Frogs dying, that happens every day. But pick a time and all the frogs will die. That's a sign pointing beyond itself. It's a proof of God's power. But it's also a reminder to be careful what you ask for. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He did what was asked for. And the frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields, and they heaped them together into big heaps, and the whole land stank. Okay, now uh, frogs being annoying are now dead frogs. And then the third sign, uh, again, it's not exactly clear what this is. Gnats, lice, uh, noceum, it's some kind of little insect uh, that's pesky, annoying, no fun. But you see this third time, there's no warning. It simply happens on man and beast. These cycles, though, of, of, of escalation, oh, uh, sorry, this first cycle, is, it's relatively light. Uh, striking the Nile, I mean, that is serious, but at this point, no one's cattle is lost, no one's crops are lost, no one dies. But we see God as a warrior king who's willing to go to battle to save his people. Remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this dialogue where the kids are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, who stands in for Christ in the Narnia stories, and they don't really know what they're talking about, Aslan. They say, is Aslan a man? And they say, no, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I had thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what we're starting to see here in Exodus. Is God safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a wild warrior king who comes to save his people, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. In these cycles, uh, these three cycles, and, and the, the, the plagues building up before the climactic final death of the firstborn sons, we see God's patience. We see his forbearance. If Pharaoh listened initially when they came and told him to let Israel go, none of this would have happened. If Pharaoh was willing to back down at any point, the final disaster would have been averted. The Lord is patient, and in great mercy, he warns of coming judgment. Uh, but Pharaoh doesn't listen. We're told that he strengthened his heart over and over again. Back in chapter 6, uh, Israel didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirits. Their spirits were somehow crushed, and they were unable to receive God's word from Moses. Pharaoh, on the other hand, at the opposite end of the spectrum, doesn't listen because his heart is strengthened. In part because his magicians are able to match uh, initially what Moses and Aaron do. So Moses and Aaron, their staff is transformed into, the word is uh, tanim in Genesis 1. It's the great sea creatures, I think is how ESV has it, great sea beasts, so some kind of a thing. Later in Ezekiel, the same word is used to describe the pharaoh, and it's there pretty clearly a crocodile. Uh, so it's not, it's not exactly clear, is this a boa constrictor, is it a crocodile? What exactly the staff turns into? Uh, but Genesis 1 tells us that this can, God created them in the first place. God can make a staff turn into one. Somehow the magicians are able to replicate this. The loaded boxes, um, 
I pitched a theory yesterday with some guys I was hiking with that maybe their staves have snakes in them all the time, so they're ready to go on this. But uh, anyway, you know, somehow they're able to conjure up a close enough illusion. Of course, Aaron's snake, crocodile staff, eats everybody else's. And it's interesting, no one comments on that. Pharaoh just says, yeah, good enough. You made it, they made it, and just goes on. And you kind of wonder, the magicians are like, afterwards, like, uh, Aaron, how do we get our staves back? Like, uh, that's part of our, uh, we need that for our work. There's no comment. And then the magicians are able to also turn water into blood or blood-colored water. Somehow they're able to, close enough, do what Moses and Aaron did. But the interesting thing there, again, is they can replicate the miracle but they can't relieve the land, okay? Uh, if, if my water source turned into blood and it was undrinkable and the fish were dying and the land was stinking and all of that, uh, the big issue to me would be, can you turn it back into water? Not can you also pollute some more water? But again, there's no comment. The frogs, I don't even know exactly what they did. Somehow they also made frogs come out of water or something. I, you know, but anyways, uh, Pharaoh keeps seeing that his magicians can do it, and so hardens his heart, strengthens his heart. The last time, the magicians can't make gnats, and what do they say? This is the finger of God. There's a warning there. In Exodus 7, God told uh, Moses, I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, what do the magicians say? It's just the finger of God. Okay, we've only felt the finger so far, but God says the full hand will be laid on. Uh, if you look at that chart, the third I mentioned earlier, the third of each sign, it comes without a warning to Pharaoh. There's a point there for us as well. God is patient, our hearts are stubborn, and there's eventually a line that we cross and judgment comes. Okay, there is a reality to final judgment. So each of these cycles makes that point. Warning, hard heart. Warning, hard heart. No warning, judgment comes. Okay, there's a point there for us. The Lord is patient, but he is also just, and there comes a point of judgment. Each of us can eventually cross that line, and judgment falls. And so, although the Lord is patient, don't presume on God's patience. Don't dilly-dally. Don't ignore his warnings. Heed the Lord who is God. I don't know if we started late or if I'm just going long, but I'm seeing the time here, so we'll keep moving here quickly to the last third truth that I want you to see. Sometimes faithfulness looks like failure. Sometimes faithfulness looks like failure. We, most of us at least, know this story, and so we see the end coming that Israel comes out of Egypt. But put yourself in Moses' shoes for a couple minutes. Okay, he's already talked to Pharaoh. Pharaoh hasn't listened. He threw down the staff. Pharaoh hasn't listened. And now he comes to Pharaoh 10 times. And nine of those times, Pharaoh doesn't listen. For Moses, faithfulness looks like failure. In chapter 5, he fails and despairs, but then he has that renewed vision of God that we talked about last week. And now what do we see in Moses, this model of what a faithful life looks like? It's perseverance, even through apparent failure. Moses is faithful to God's command. God keeps telling him, stretch out your hands, say this to the Pharaoh, do this. And Moses keeps doing it. But over and over again, Pharaoh uh, hardens his heart. Pharaoh rejects Moses' message. He's met with refusal. He, uh, Pharaoh keeps making deals that fall through, as we'll see. Israel is silent. They've kind of turned against Moses at this point. He's out on his own with Aaron. 
his faithfulness looks like failure. That's important to remember. Moses gives us a model of the life of faithfulness, but sometimes faithfulness looks like failure. Maybe you, like I, have unbelieving family members and friends. Uh, hopefully, you have unbelieving friends. That, uh, uh, that's a side point, but you should know people that don't know God and try and introduce... Okay. Uh, here, uh, all that to say, being faithful in telling your unbelieving friends and family about God oftentimes looks like failure. You say the message again and again. You try to be gentle and loving and kind and not be uh, abrasive and obnoxious about it. And yet, oftentimes, people turn that message down. They're met with, you're met with refusal. And yet, eventually, people's hearts do change through God's grace. Parenting looks like this. Uh, parenting, uh, the, probably the best advice we got is parenting's like being a, 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 a scratched record that keeps playing the same, you know, you say the same thing over and over again. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Eventually, kids do turn into adults. It works out. And yet, oftentimes, in the process of parenting, we just think, you know, in the midst of it, where did I go wrong? What is going on here? Living faithfully in our sexual lives, you're perceived oftentimes as a failure by many in the world. Okay, why don't you just go do this and that and have true joy and freedom? Uh, you're failing by not doing all these things we're doing. And yet living faithfully in our sexual lives, although it may look like failure from the outside, it ultimately has effects as God works faithfully in our lives. So what Moses shows us is oftentimes living faithfully means being out on your own, even swimming against the currents. Okay? And so sometimes it can be quite lonely. Israel's not with Moses. Egypt's not with Moses. It's Moses and Aaron out there doing uh, what they're called to do, living faithfully. Uh, as a side note, warning, sometimes if you're out on your own, it's because you're doing something goofy, okay? Uh, people just do stupid things, and that's why they isolate themselves at, at times. Other times, being faithful leads to you being out on your own, and you need to be careful to distinguish which, and that's part of why we gather together as a church. It's like, uh, you know, if I feel like the Bible's telling me something weird that no one else thinks the Bible's telling me, then that should be a check that maybe I'm out of step there. But nevertheless, faithfulness at times means being out on our own. How do we know then which is which, if we're being faithful or we're being goofy? Well, we see again in Moses' example, he's obedient to God. He's obedient to God. God tells him to do something. He follows God's command. He listens to God's word. And so the same for us. We know that we are on our own because we're being faithful if we're doing what God calls us to in his word. Okay, even regardless of what the rest of the world says. So faithfulness isn't sheer pragmatism, okay? Faithfulness means obedience, even when it doesn't look like it's having any effect. And in the end, God finally uses Moses' faithfulness to deliver his people. But it's only after 10 times. It's only after series and series of failures. Uh, in the late Sorry, I hate mixing up centuries and uh, late 18th, early 19th century. There we go. Uh, there was a man named William Carey, who probably his name's familiar to many of you. When he was uh, first ordained as a minister, as a Reformed Baptist in England, he had an early meeting, uh, church, or at a church meeting early in his career, he stood up and he was giving a speech in favor of foreign missions, saying, we've got to go and bring God's word to the nations. And an older minister stood up and said to him, in the middle of his speech, interrupted him, said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. 
if God, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Okay? Uh, William Carey's church basically turned against him, said, you know, you're on your own. You're crazy doing what you want to do. Uh, he was a minority of one. But nevertheless, he persisted in being faithful to God's calling. He ministered in India for 41 years without returning home. A long faithfulness. He said, I can plod and persevere. That is my only genius. I wonder, do any of you feel like that? Our only genius, we can plod and persevere. Uh, that's a good running strategy, right, Joel? <laughs> but it applies to life as well. We can plod and persevere. William Carey spent 41 years in a country of 200 million people, and at the end of his life had seen less than 700 people convert to Christianity. Okay, it's a long faithfulness that oftentimes looked like failure. And yet William Carey is today known as the father of modern mission because he inspired an entire movement. Without William Carey standing up as a minority of one and speaking faithfully and acting faithfully, the gospel would not be known today around the world in Africa and Asia, uh, South America, throughout the world. And moreover, uh, his ministry, although he only saw 700 people converted in his lifetime, uh, long-lasting education and social reforms throughout India as a result of the work that he did. Okay, for William Carey, faithfulness looked like being out on your own, a minority of one. At times, it oftentimes looked like failure. And yet, in retrospect, 300 years later, we say William Carey is one of the most important Christians in the modern world. How can we do that? How can we stay faithful even when it looks like failure? How can we live 41 years of failure, apparent failure, of people on your own side criticizing you? What does that look like? Or, or how do we do that? Well, we can only do it when we look to Jesus, the ultimate example of a faithful failure. He lived a perfectly faithful life, and yet how does his life end? Nailed to a cross, his own people rejecting him, the Roman overlords thinking that they've triumphed over him, here in Jesus, we see the divine warrior of Exodus, the great Savior God, come to earth in weakness, laying down his life in defeat to save his people. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien tried to coin a word for this, a catastrophe. A catastrophe is what happens at the end of the Exodus plagues, when they don't listen, they don't listen, and finally catastrophe comes and destroys Egypt. Tolkien says a you catastrophe, it's what happens at the end of a fairy tale. It's the opposite of that. It's a good catastrophe in the positive direction. I don't know that the term's ever going to catch on. It just doesn't ring off the tongue. But the idea he's getting at there, it's something that we all long for. That even at the final moment, what seems to be failure, something good suddenly happens. And that's what we see on the cross. Christ is faithful to God's command, like Moses, even through failure when his own people won't listen to him, when the Romans capture him, when he's nailed to the cross and mocked, and in that final moment that seems to be failure, true freedom comes. The God of the Exodus once again sets people free from their bondage. And when your life is found in the freedom that Christ has won for you as the true faithful failure, then we too can live day in and day out faithfully, even when it seems to be a failure. Okay, the first cycle of plagues. What do I want you to take away from it? The Lord is God. He is there. He is not silent. You've got to reckon with him. The Lord is patient, but our hearts are stubborn, and there does come a time of judgment. 
Each of us will finally be judged, and you've got to be ready for that. How do we get ready? By finding our life hidden in Christ on high. By taking as our own king the faithful failure, the divine warrior who laid down his life to bring us freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that our hearts are just as stubborn as Pharaoh's. We want to go our own way. Uh, we, in our foolishness, even hang on to our bondage and things that control our lives. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would show yourself to be the true Lord God of all things, that by your signs and wonders, you would point us to yourself, that as we come to you, we would come to know you better, that ultimately our hearts would be won over by Christ Jesus, the faithful failure who laid down his life to set us free. Thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that we can depend on you in the midst of all things. Amen.